0: Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick-Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Today I'm excited to be joined by musician and composer John Clay Allen. Clay and I speak about the intersection of classical music and electronic music, and towards the end of the show, Clay talks about his new album, On Air. Excited to be joined by composer, pianist, educator, and explorer on the fringes where classical music meets electronic music, John Clay Allen. Welcome, Clay, to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you with us, and I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Thanks for having me, Devin.
0: One of the things that has become ever more prevalent in classical arenas on the symphonic stage in the last five to ten years is the influence of electronic music, electronic with acoustic music, uh, which has a lot of uh, surprising roots in the 20th century and the history of the development of not only classical music, but pop music. Clay, can you talk a little bit about your interest in, but also maybe getting into some of the origins of electronic music in the classical world?
1: Sure. I just think it's such an interesting intersection between these two worlds. We think about classical music, and we always think about Beethoven or Tchaikovsky, kind of in the symphony hall, right? These big sort of titanic symphonies. More and more, like this history has been um, increasingly influenced by technology, and it kind of always has been in a way. But when we think specifically about electronic music, that intersection basically goes back to the end of the 19th century. Um, we start seeing the invention of the phonograph by Thomas Edison's team, The really the very first time that we can record and reproduce sound. And by doing so, we've kind of changed the whole way that we interact with music as a whole. So not only does it sort of yield all of these different genres like pop music and rock music and things like that. But it kind of changes the way that we consume classical records as well. Just being able to have that recording to sort of reference and listen to repeatedly. So we see the uh, the technology start to merge with classical music beginning of the 20th century. One of my favorite examples of this is in 1924 with uh, Respighi's Pines of Rome, in which he uses, there's basically a phonograph player among the orchestra playing recordings of a nightingale along with the, the rest of the orchestra. So it's kind of the precursor to a whole genre of music where we have acoustic instruments with uh, fixed media or tape or phonograph sort of as an accompaniment.
0: One of the topics that's really interesting to me is how electronic music in the orchestra can be traced all the way back to serialism in the second Viennese school. This idea that music that was written tonally, all the melodies had already been done at the end of the 19th century, and there needed to be some kind of new invention which turned turned out to be mathematical by Schoenberg, Webern, Berg, that music is created by numbers and that you can only use certain pitches. And after you use one pitch, you can't use it again and so on and so forth. The response in the music world was, of course, minimalism, where Terry Riley, Music and C, where music was kind of stripped down to its bare bone, essential, component parts, you know, which to me is kind of like Beethoven's Fifth anyway, because the component part is, any, is only four notes, and he creates a whole symphony out of that. But minimalism moves straight to electronic music, which in the same way, it strips rhythm down to its own very essential component parts. Can you kind of talk about how serialism and minimalism play a role in the advent of electronic music, which merges with the orchestra?
1: As you mentioned, it's absolutely interesting that both of these styles, one of which is totally a reaction to serialism, have totally embraced electronic means and technologies. On the serialism path, right, we've got, you know, we have Schoenberg and Berg and Webern up to a certain point in there, you know, they've got the tone rows, um, they're writing this 12-tone music, and sort of after them, after they kind of passed the torch, we have these composers like Stockhausen and people like Boulez and Milton Babbitt Where at this point, we're not just serializing the pitches, we're also serializing rhythm, we're serializing timbre, orchestration, all of these things. And at a certain point, it gets to be so complex that these different um, permutations in the row, it's really, really challenging to actually hear that or to perform it accurately. If you're a performer and you're trying to perform this very intricate um, sort of rhythmic row... That can be a very difficult thing to do accurately because, as you say, it's so mathematic, but, you know, sort of the other side of that, like one option, one sort of solution is to just program a synthesizer or a sequencer, and it will do exactly what you want to do when you want to do it. So no wrong notes, no wrong rhythms, so to speak. And that's sort of the serialist path, right? The sort of program in exactly what you want to happen you don't have to rely on the uh, the performer. And then that way you can kind of get a total serialism that people like Milton Babbitt were sort of after on the sort of the other side, this reaction to this music, we see um, minimalism. And so of course we have pieces like NC or, you know, Steve Reich's music for 18, but very quickly, these composers start really taking advantage of again, real to reel tape. So we see, we have so many pieces from Steve Reich that basically, take advantage of this sort of malfunction in tape recorders wherein sort of duplicate recordings are kind of being played and they're getting uh, increasingly out of sync. So that's where all of his phase pieces come from. And it's sort of just a quirk in the technology itself. So we also see, you know, other minimalist composers like John Adams, for example, really taking advantage of the technology. He was another one who uh, wanted to take advantage of the sort of the, the tape as sort of a backing track really very early on. And we see this in a lot of different pieces. But most importantly, we see it um, in 2002 when he writes this, um, this piece in memory of um, the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Transmigration of Souls exactly yeah. and so that's such a you know a lot of that is using sort of found audio sort of different clips and it really kind of creates more of like a sort of a sonic landscape as opposed to sort of a integral like melodic harmonic textural complement to the orchestra or the choir instead it's kind of just this soundscape that kind of puts you it makes you feel like you're in the streets of new york city sort of reading the missing person notices or, or what have you
0: kind of two ways to manipulate music with a, with the computer and one is to write actually just for the electronics essentially and the other is actually taking acoustic audio from recordings of musicians could be could be pre-recorded or could be at a live concert and looping it in or manipulating it in a recording or in real time. Can you talk about those two different aspects and any composers you've worked with or composers you like to highlight in those regards?
1: We can kind of talk about the first one, basically synthesis, where the computer is creating the sound. There's no microphone involved. There's no sort of recording involved whatsoever. The computer itself or a synthesizer, um, and originally they were analog synthesizers. You had these analog circuits, controlled oscillators. To sort of generate sound, and then through a number of filters or different um, modulation techniques, you can really build up some complicated sounds. Um, And now, of course, that can all happen much easier digitally. So we can go in and we can even code in something that says, you know, play this pitch, give it these, you know, these harmonics, this sort of timbre, play it for this long, and you can kind of do it. I mean, composers have been sort of programming it like that for a long time now. Um, There's certainly more, you know, simpler tools that you can use these days than just that's kind of the sort of the extreme example, and that's all of that kind of falls into synthesis, right? The computer is creating sounds basically from scratch, and then, of course, we play it back over speakers, and then it enters the acoustic domain at that point. The other side of the coin is starting with an acoustic sound, and then you you record this acoustic sound, and then you're either manipulating it either digitally or, again, with analog means. So when we talk about, you know, that's sort of the middle of the 20th century Using phonographs or um, reel-to-reel tape recorders, these composers would record whatever sounds, sometimes they're musical, a lot of times they're not, sometimes they're what we would consider noise, sort of day-to-day sounds, and they would record these and then find ways to manipulate them in interesting ways, whether that would be playing them backwards, stretching them in time, changing the pitch, things like that, kind of chopping them up, putting them in a different order... And as the technology became more and more sophisticated, so does this music in a lot of ways. It kind of opens up the number of techniques that we have to manipulate sound. So one way we've talked about these tape pieces. And so with tape pieces, they're fixed. You cut it up, you play it backwards, you do whatever you want to do to it. And then it's sort of in its final form and you just play it back. It doesn't change. Using some other tools, we can actually change the sound in real time. So if we think about like pop music and we think about rock music in the middle of the 20th century, like the 60s. We think about the rock studio. Um, We think about guitarists coming in and adding distortion or delay or chorus, flanger, these different sort of sounds to their, um, just to their guitars or to their amps, the same sort of principles we can apply to, you know, classical instruments or otherwise acoustic recordings, kind of bring them in in real time, apply some delay or some chorus. You can kind of change that in real time as well. And then, you know, around the 80s, all of these tools started becoming digital Um, And now they're, you know, almost exclusively, we still see some analog tools, but we can come in and we can do all of these permutations in real time. You know, we can just program the computer to do it, sort of play along as we sort of almost kind of as an accompaniment, really, to sort of manipulate the, the sound in real time. So that can be as basic as just adding, you know, a little bit of fuzz to an electric guitar to, you know, kind of creating just a wild, wild soundscape based on just some basic, you know, sounds that you're putting into the microphone. So one composer that's really um, stellar, whose work I admire a lot in this area, would be Eleni Lilios. Um, so she's kind of the master at writing. For a solo instrument, you hook it up to a microphone and a laptop, and you just get some really beautiful textures, soundscapes, the really, really visceral music and it's really it's funny you just start with a solo instrument, the laptop, um, and the microphone that's kind of all you need.
0: then there's another great composer performer named Pamela Z who manipulates her voice with live electronics. And I understand that she's influenced your work as well.
1: So what's really um, fascinating about Pamela Z is she turns the, um, the apparatus, the sort of the playing on stage with the laptop, and she makes it really feel like a theatrical sort of a performance. A lot of times um, what happens is you kind of get these sort of stale performances where a composer or a performer comes up. They're standing in front of the microphone and there's a kind of a laptop on stage. And there's this sort of disconnect between the performer and the audience because that laptop is there. It sort of gets in the way. And Pamela Z really flips that on its head um, because a lot of what she's doing is she um, is using gestural controllers that are also hooked up to the laptop. So it's not only that is she manipulating her voice, but she's also being able to do that using these gestures with her hands. So, you know, she has a little, um, she has various uh, monitors and things like that. Then the farther away her hand is, depending on what motion it, you know her hands her hands are moving in, she's able to sort of manipulate her voice in real time. And I think that's something that's really satisfying for an audience to to see. Not only does it just go into this magic box that spits out fantastic sounds, it feels like she's actually able to really do it. This program
2: has been made possible by the generous, generous donations government of the has individuals You still have two remaining lifelines. Go, go, Earn let's for go. he will need months of freedom donation. Bail NBS. is set at $5,000. They're die cut, so they need money for your chosen charities. Every
0: There's another kind of a sub-category of music that comes out of this that I, as a kind of straight classical performer for the past couple of decades, uh, am, am not as familiar with, and that's around the spectralism. Can you talk a little bit about how that interacts with minimalism and maybe culminates in the electronic use of sounds and beats in the orchestra. Uh, One of the pieces that that I was actually familiar with and that you've mentioned was uh, Gerard Griset's Partiel, which is an incredible work for anybody who hasn't heard that. But what he does is he takes one note from a trombone and essentially orchestrates that. Um, So can you talk about maybe spectralism And then how orchestration of instruments parallels orchestration or manipulation of sounds.
1: So what spectral composers are doing or started doing in the 1970s in France, not particularly novel or new necessarily. It's been around for for a while, this idea that you take the harmonic series and that is the sort of fundamental basis of your pitch language for whatever piece you might be working on. We see this as far back as... um, as Messian, and then just before the specialists, we see composers like Per Norgar or, um, or Chelsea. So the distinction here, what happens is in the 1970s, we sort of have the processing power of digital recording and digital audio and digital synthesis. We can get in and we can analyze a sound or like a low trombone E, for example, as in Parciels, we can analyze that and we can see what exactly are all of the component frequencies that make this E sound like a trombone E to our ears. We know that that sounds like a trombone and not a cello and not a bass clarinet because of this sort of this pitch content that is, you know, sort of baked into that note. So what happens is we get the processing power, the spectralists can now unlock this, we have the technology, the technology sort of allows for um, this sort of new process of working. And so not only can we take this, you know, this this one spectra, we can also do what Kayasari Aho did a generation later, um, is sort of interpolate between one spectra and another um, we can kind of get this sort of continuum, and then we can sort of gradually move from one to the other and that 's the discourse of the piece so instead of like nineteenth century sonata form where we go from the tonic area to the dominant area fifth away, and then we return at the end of the piece to you know our home key um, instead of this one it 's kind of just a transition from one spectrum to the other, for example. Um, and all of that works and all of that is possible because we're able to analyze these sounds and see. Kaya Sarriaho takes it one step further by introducing synthesizers and amplification and these other things to sort of really heighten um, this sort of sense of progression between the two harmonic poles. So Sariaho was heavily influenced by the spectralist and she's trained with, um, with Mirai. Mm-hmm. Um, so she comes from that world and she definitely took it further. Absolutely. But it's sort of the same background and it's a lot of the same sort of fundamental um, processes underneath.
0: And that also seems to be a fairly, because I'm thinking of like Arvo Pert, you know, the Tintinabile style that he uses, which is very centered around minimalism, but is also utilizing overtones in a way that is creating very clear colors and timbres. So, So to me, this is a very like Norwegian thing. Of course, there's it's English, but it's also Norway, Finland, Estonia. There's a very northern Nordic element to this development in music. Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of see it, it starts sort of in France almost, and it's it almost begins with a sort of a preoccupation with timbre, really. Because right when we're talking about a spectrum or spectral music, we're talking about being able to sort of key into timbre. When we think about timbre in music, we think about the color of the sound. What makes this sound so clearly a flute note as opposed to a clarinet, as opposed to a trumpet or a violin? The reason that we can tell that is because of the sound's timbre. Mm -hmm. And what gives it its timbre is the component frequencies. So if we were to analyze, you know, a violin playing A440, yeah, we're going to see the frequency 440. But we're also going to see some other frequencies Above it, we're going to see whole number of multiples of this 440, and they're going to be at different amplitudes. And that's what gives the sound its timbre, There's these different frequencies at different amplitudes, and that's different for every instrument. So when we think about, when we talk about timbre in sort of a technical sense, that's what we're talking about, is we're talking about the spectrum of a given sound.
0: For those who are maybe not as familiar with the harmonic spectrum and the harmonic series, you know, maybe you can give an elevator pitch, you know, to somebody who doesn't understand that.
1: You know, you orchestrate in such a way as to sort of take advantage of the harmonic series. Rameau has these treatises on harmony and things like that. We can go back to the Baroque and sort of key into this, right? We have tuning systems, you know, before the well tempered clavier, before equal tempered, that are sort of based around the harmonic series. So it's not that it's a new idea, but maybe the the place where it's most evident in 18th and 19th century is an orchestration. You don't put, you know clustered chords you don't put thirds and things like that deep low in the instrument low in the piano or low in the orchestra you you have these big octaves and fifths and big sort of open intervals the lower you get in the orchestra and the higher you get you can start getting you know you can you know fourths and thirds and get smaller and smaller as you go up Um, and that's sort of just basic orchestration principles and that's all because of the harmonic series But yes, so the the, the spectralists, they key in, they kind of take it where we just inhabit sort of one spectrum for a little while, or we move between them. And that's sort of the process of the piece. So it's process music in the sense that serialism is process music. Here's a tone road. This is what we're going to do. And spectralism, it's not any less systematic necessarily. Some people may feel like it's more pleasing or something like that, but it's kind of a different, just a different way of approaching music as opposed to melody and harmony or a tone row. So I think all of these distinctions between, you know, we see it more, it's, it's they're so evident today, but they don't necessarily need to be there. These distinctions between classical music and popular music and rock music and electronic, all of these distinctions between genre are more or less artificial. Um, since the 1980s, I think composers have become more and more interested with this idea of boundaries between genre or sort of this gray area. So I think since the nineteen eighties, composers have just become increasingly interested in sort of blurring these lines between what is orchestral music and what is popular music, and what is you know high art and what is low art. And it's all all of these distinctions feel you know really artificial when you start when you really put them under any sort of scrutiny. I think the the sort of the shift that we've seen you know in those, maybe since the two thousands of incorporating you know, of, of orchestras and opera houses really incorporating electronics. I think that's a positive sort of shift. And I know that, you know, there's kind of a couple of different angles that that's coming from. Part of it is that composers really want to be able to say everything they need to say, and maybe they can't do so without, you know, bringing in a synthesizer or bringing in some pre-recorded material. I know since, you know, since the 1980s, all of John Adams operas have used electronics or synthesizers in some way. That's just part of the opera orchestra is these synthesizers. That's kind of a an earlier example and now we see, you know, in 2016 Mason Bates The Revolution of Steve Jobs where really the electronics are an equal partner with the orchestra. And part of that is the subject matter, but also part of that is his musical language. And I think, you know, opera companies and orchestras are really excited to kind of get in on that because, you know, part of it is that they're they're trying to grow their this audience. There's sort of this crisis that we keep I don't know, you know, whether it's real or not, we keep hearing about this crisis of, you know, classical music is dying or what, you know, that's that was something that I've heard, you know, like basically my whole adult life as a classical musician. That's what
0: there. that's what they would talk about. <laughs> Mozart recounted that when he was giving his piano concerts in the 1780s, his piano concerti, he was worried that the audiences were fading away and dying. So it's been... They've been talking about that for a long time,
1: right? So, so classical music has been dying for the last, you know, four hundred years. Even COVID can't keep it down. We will see. We will see what happens on the other side. I'd be curious <laughs> to know what, If you have any projections,
0: I think that no question, it was a wake-up call. I mean, not to, of course, COVID is a catastrophe. I mean, it's so um, COVID has has um, devastated so many lives and and so many systems and institutions in our world. But I think that's the great thing about being an artist is that is the resiliency and and every artist I know every every orchestra every leader every conductor every musician has not taken this lying down. Everybody stepped up and developed new skills and tried to figure out where do we go from here and what are what is our community looking for and you know what will it support and what what do people need right now and I think that's. In many ways, it brings out the best of arts organizations and orchestras in particular. And I'm pretty confident that a year from now, you know, we're going to see a reimagined symphonic landscape, which we're already starting to see. Orchestras, uh, you know, many kind of things that have been just, and this goes sociologically, politically as well, many things that have just been holding our society down because of big events like this. We're going to take it to the next level. Like we're going to step up and say, yes, this needed to be changed. Let's change it (laughs) because there's no reason to hold on to old systems now. So I'm quite optimistic and I know I have to be, but um, it's also out of choice that, uh, and what I've been seeing and what I anticipate seeing is that I I feel that orchestras and symphonies and and the entire arts world is going to be reimagined in the most exciting ways.
1: I certainly hope so. You know, thinking about this inclusion of, you know, this embrace of technology or of popular musics or whatever, you know, I mean, certainly part of it is from the composer's end where we need to say things that we can't, you know, we can't say the same, the stuff that we need to say using Tchaikovsky's orchestra. You know, Tchaikovsky said it. I'm not going to say it better than him or Beethoven or Mahler. Like I, that's, you know, that's, I can say some different things, but at the same time, it's, you know, there's some other, there's no reason not to take advantage or not to sort of explore these possibilities, right? And we're still exploring them, even though digital technology has been around for quite a while now.
0: Mario Davidovsky said, music is like the kind of language that you may eventually use to see the face of God. I believe that. And I'm wondering, do you think that electronic sounds, computer generated sounds are on the same playing field as acoustically live generated by musician sounds?
1: Oh, I definitely do. You know, there was there there was a while where, you know, synthesizers were very primitive and the the timbres were very, um, very mundane. Um, And I think it's it's easy to kind of think about electronic music, to think about that or to think about, you know, certain sounds that you hear over and over again in EDM music. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg Um, with sort of the advent of digital audio and digital synthesis really sort of the um the sky's the limit it's kind of whatever you can dream up you can sort of build it you literally can build whatever sound you want to build and so there's no reason that it should it shouldn't kind of meet that criteria you know what for for you know that's kind of a very personal subjective sort of way of you know it's kind of different for every person of course um but i definitely have that experience with with a lot of electronic music personally
0: Getting to your personal, professional life right now, you have an incredibly uh, rich and diverse and just um, inspired palette of sounds that you've just created in your new album, On This was a time when you were going through a divorce, you were in France, and COVID hit, then all these different things kind of coalesced into a grand finale. Can you talk about the creative process behind your new album?
1: Yeah, certainly. When I, s- I knew I was going to write this for, for a while now, and I definitely didn't anticipate any of those things actually happening. Sort of the beginning is I had this, this Wurlitzer upright piano, just kind of this old Craigslist free piano in my apartment and I was about to move out and it was just one of those things like it couldn't come with me. And so I thought, what you know, well, this would be fun if I just hook up a bunch of microphones and just sort of methodically systematically take this instrument apart piece by piece, you know, because there's some, if we're talking about technology, there's, you know, a piano is, is a marvel, right? So to take this thing apart, piece by piece, all of the hammers, um, kind of all of the, all the, fo- the fall boards, the, uh, the soundboard to unwind these strings. Um, it's just, you know, kind of, it's just, it's sort of instructive, you know, just kind of the intricacy and the beauty of this instrument. Right. So to take it apart, turn on the microphones, just hit record, see what sounds come out. And, you know, as you imagine, there's a lot of quote weird sounds. Um, There's some that are surprisingly musical. There's some that were absolutely useless, but basically, you know, I recorded this and I just had hours and hours and hours of, of sounds you know, to sort of play with. And I knew that I was like, okay, well, I've got this sound, these sounds, and what I need to do is just some sort of big, thorough, comprehensive project, you know, so that they don't just sit there on my hard drive or something. So that's kind of the first step is to sort of get the sounds. And this is my preferred way. We've talked about, you know, we talked about some of these different techniques of, you know, synthesis and live instrument. One of my favorite ways of working, and this this, this changed the way that I think about acoustic music, by the way, is this idea of music concrete sort of a tradition that came out of you know france post-war where you record sort of everyday sounds and then you manipulate them kind of beyond recognition some people sort of hear it as like a collage music and some people just take it way further and it becomes sort of this beautiful landscape kind of thing and i love to think about sound that way and i love to kind of use that as the basis for music and so what happened is i've got this palette of sounds i go through and i spend you know. Weeks, sort of cataloging them and organizing them, editing them down, getting rid of noise, uh, sort of changing them, getting them ready so that I can actually compose with them. Right, so there's kind of this prep stage where it's got to get ready before I can I can actually use them to compose. And so, you know, as I'm doing that, I have the headphones on, I listen. I sort of hear, you know, I try to imagine what's possible in this sound. What can I do with this one? Oh, this would be really cool if I just time stretched that by, you know, like 400%. Or what if I, you know, transposed this? What would that sound like? And you get some incredible results just by doing some basic things like that. So so the first step is to catalog that kind of see what's possible. The next one is start doing some of these um, these manipulations to see what kind of a, uh, you know, see if you can really expand the palette, you know. And so by the time we did this, I just had hours and hours of material. And then finally, you know, so this started, this was all while I was in France at this point. So, you know, have my laptop, I'm on the train, have the headphones, just go through, you know, play with some sounds today. And they start, I start getting a rich enough palette that I feel comfortable that I can really start actually composing. And I don't know if there's a distinction between what I was doing and, you know, composing proper, but. I kind of tend to think of it all as composition. Is the music
0: being written out on like a standard score?
1: No. So the way that I do it is I have just just piles of legal pads where I write out, you know, ideas about gestures, you know, full of adjectives, different things like that. So a lot of structural like form things, um, but no uh, no notes or chords or anything like that. There's one track on the album where I wrote out like a lead sheet type thing with some With some chords, keep me on track for the harmony. But otherwise, no. And this is really, to me,
0: this is very operatic. You know, it's very episodic in terms of how you've gotten it laid out. You know, with these kind of these kind of sub themes going through. Can Can you talk about like just how you presented it dramatically?
1: Sort of in the early stages, as I was beginning to compose, that I had an idea. It's like, okay, I need ten or eleven tracks. Here's what I'm kind of feeling. Here's like basically eleven different ideas that I know that. I want to do with this material. Maybe there will be more, maybe, you know, some of these will get cut later on. But yeah, so there's this idea where here is the shape of it. And it's just based on purely on sound. Um, And so I've, you know, working for about a year, really with just the sounds, no idea about titles or any, you know, a narrative or any sort of dramaturgy whatsoever. But as I was finishing it up, I started thinking about the album artwork, and like what it really needed to sort of be, I realized that you know I was at this point in my life. I was in Paris you know for a month. I was sort of on the train all the time and these were the you know this is kind of where I was in my life and there was no reason to not really sort of take advantage of that when I started thinking about the titles um so it's not the necessarily programmatic music, but the titles do sort of point back to this process so there's kind of two or three different threads um sort of throughout, so there's some that are very specific to um France and Paris, and so you see the rail pieces. There's rail one, two, three, four, and you know that kind of just is, uh, alludes to all of this time that I spent on trains going back and forth between Paris and Normandy and different places. You know, in that time that I kind of worked whilst sort of in the train car. Um, so you've got you know rail one, um, La Seine, right? So that's the the river in Paris. So you see we've got we've got these rail pieces, rail one, two, three, and four, that kind of relate to this idea of me spending so much time, you know, on the train while I was composing this. A lot of them are very specific places in Paris. So St. Lazarus um is a reference to this main train terminal that I would basically find myself in every day as I was kind of commuting into Paris. Um there's a couple other tracks on here, um Ponterson, which is in Normandy. There's a few others. Um you know, like the prelude in a letter, It's Just Bones, which is a little bit later on, Um, this piece Centennial, all of these kind of relate to um, sort of personal, you know, kind of moments in my life in the last four or five years as I sort of moved to Colorado, finished this doctorate in composition, this sort of, these other kind of personal things that um, maybe don't necessarily have any bearing, you know, or any relationship to the Paris trip, but kind of in my life, gearing up, you know, kind of led me to this moment in time, really. But How
0: long were you in Paris?
1: Four weeks for Paris and then a couple of weeks at the end, sort of uh, through, you know, through Belgium and the Netherlands. Essentially, this was a trip to um, go watch the Women's World Cup.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> Is that in at all? Is the football aspect in there at all?
1: Uh, Not at all. No. Yeah. And actually, now that I now that you say it, I kind of regret that that's there's not <laughs> something there. It didn't occur to me to even do that.
0: So in terms of, are are there any pieces on the album where people could hear, could hear the theme of it or or were essentially, because I know you can, you can write music on a theme, but it seems like you're, you know, you're, you're starting with the sounds, you're kind of going in the reverse order and putting themes to that.
1: Exactly. So, no, there's not really any that you'll hear. Maybe Rail 3, which is St. Lazarus. Um, If you want to hear a train on that one, you probably can.
0: And did you use the Wurlitzer for basically all of the pieces, all of the tracks?
1: Yes. So it's exclusively samples from that, with one exception, which is the um, the chord progression that you hear in the final track, the postlude.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Are you trying to portray some kind of deeper meaning with that postlude?
1: I think one can kind of come out if you listen for, if you, it, it wasn't intentional, um I feel one when I listen to it. And the title actually refers to the instrument that I recorded it on, you know, and the 2006 being a year that was, you know, for me fairly seminal in terms of me becoming a musician and you know sort of wanting to spend my life doing music. And so that's kind of what it's so it's sort of almost a look all the way back. And what was that point where you where you
0: made that decision?
1: I think it was just me as a high school pianist realizing that there's nothing else I wanted to do in life except for be a pianist and be a composer. So I think maybe the best piece on the album is this, it's track eight. It's the centennial Mm -hmm. (laughs) subtitled piano jazz, which is cheeky. It's not actually jazz. So if you're, I I think there's a lot of people who've come here listening, you know, kind of hoping, oh, we've got banjo jazz and piano jazz And, (laughs) and it's, and they're just like totally disappointed. But, um, that's a, that's a fun piece because it's all sort of. A Happy accident it's process music it's the only one that actually sounds like piano music as well. well, it's one of two that really sounds like piano music and it comes from this sample that was basically five notes sort of played in a row and it's transposed all over the register up and down it's slowed down it's played faster, and all of these relationships are actually governed by the Fibonacci c- series mm-hmm. and so we kind of get these these interesting peculiar rhythmic relationships that really create some really fun textures that I just had no idea were going to come out until I actually plugged it in and it, and it just happened. And I was like, whoa, okay, this is some really fun kind of playful material. And so that's one where it's just kind of a process piece where I've you know, i got these different Fibonacci relationships. I had a, like basically a rhythmic outline. I plugged that into the program and then I turned on the sample with the five notes and basically let it run its course and some of the best six minutes on the album, I personally think.
0: to talk to you and to kind of get the the skinny on the entire uh, history of electronics in symphonic music and the symphony and to hear about your new album coming out that I hope everybody will check out available on all the musical platforms. Thank you, Clay, for joining us. It's been great to speak with you. I hope you uh, continue to create this great music and to merge computerized sounds, electronically created sounds with the orchestra. And uh, I hope to work with you on projects in the future in this regard.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Devin. I'd love to.
0: Thank you for joining us on One Symphony, and thanks to John Clay Allen for sharing his music, knowledge, and expertise. Thank you to all the incredible performers and record labels that made this episode possible. Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony was performed by the Oslo Philharmonic and Maurice Janssens. Respighi's Pines of Rome was played by the Berlin Philharmonic conducted by Herbert von Karajan. John Adams' Transmigration of Souls was performed by the New York Philharmonic and Lauren Mizzell on None Such Records. Au Etage by Eleni Lilios is from the album Miniature Concrète from the Emprunt Digital Label. Pamela Z's Ethel Dreams of Temporal Disturbances is performed by Ethel, VJ Iyer, and Pamela Z from the album Light Cantaloupe Music. Gérard Grise's Partiel from Les Espaces Acoustiques is played by the V.D. Air Symphony Orchestra conducted by Stefan Osberry on Kairos Records. Warehouse Medicine from the B-Sides by Mason Bates is performed by the San Francisco Symphony and Michael Tilson Thomas. The remainder of tracks come from John Clay Allen's Anière, which you can find on all platforms wherever you listen to your music. You can also check out John Clay Allen online at johnclayallen.com. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Music